This week, we have Scott Hunter, Director of Program Management for .NET, Management Languages and Runtimes, including Java and others, and one of our favorite recurring guests. How's it going, Scott? It's going great. Um, we just shipped .NET 5 like two weeks ago, so I am recovering. Uh, yeah, shipping, you've been so and, busy. Uh, I've seen you everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> everywhere, man. Like everywhere I go, there's Scott, like talking about it. Which it's, is, uh, super I will cool. say this. It's, it's a weird thing of, of uh, you know, the year that we're in. Mm-hmm. Um, the virtualization of user groups, the virtualization of conferences has meant that uh, we've done, I've done more conferences this year than I've probably ever done in my entire career. Um, and I've also not flown. So it's a, it's a weird thing. Like this week, mm-hmm. um, you're the second. I'll do, I'll do three this week. I've been averaging one to, one to two a week probably since build back in May. Um, that's awesome. Well, congratulations on the on the amazing release. Congratulations! I mean, much. you're definitely getting a lot of uh, a lot of traction. Like I said, I'm seeing it everywhere. I'm seeing you everywhere. So, the message is definitely getting out there, and people are are like genuinely excited. Like, I mean, this is, um, you know, I think back when when .NET Core came out, and then every iteration as it's improved has been such a big deal, and it just feels like it's it's so mature at this point, which is which is great to see. Yeah, I think the maturity really, you know, it's it's funny. Um, I was going to say it's version three, uh, which has always been a Microsoft thing, you know, Windows 3.1 or three. Um, it seems like threes are always the ones, but in .NET, it really wasn't three because uh, .NET Core 3 was not the third version. Right. We had chipped a 1.0, a 1.1, a 2.0, a 2.1, a 2.2. Some of those were significant. Yeah. Th- those are Some of those were not small leaps over the ones before them. So, you know, .NET Core 3 was probably more like it was version five by that point, actually, is the... Yeah. So will there be a .NET 2000, a .NET XP, .NET Vista? <laughs> there will not be any of those. .NET Me. <laughs> so I, I still have slides, you know, before we ever shipped .NET Core. Um, there was one point that .NET Core was actually called um, .NET 2015. <laughs> um, I, I, I don't, that must have been a thing that we were doing at Microsoft at the time is putting the years next to it. Um, and so we had, we mm-hmm. actually, I have, I have slideware of, of calling it .NET 2015. Um we, we you know, I, I, to me, like my reaction is that would have been horrific, but we probably would have gotten used to it. Like, let's just be, let's just be honest. But there's also like this, this fascination with like the let the the letter X and standing for ten, right? So there could have been .NET X, and we could, and then we could have debated whether or not it's called ten or X. <laughs> so the, the, when, when we, I'll, 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 there's fun analogies that when we're doing the the, the year one, mm-hmm. um, the thing that came to mind to us was when you buy a car. You know, cars are sold based on the year. Oh, I have a a 2004 Corvette, or I have a mm-hmm. um, you know 2017 Corvette. You know, car cars were done kind of on the on the on the year, and so that was one of the things that we thought about. And then of course, you know, Visual Studio plays into this game. Visual Studio 2019. Mm-hmm. So you could have .NET yeah, 2019, yeah. Visual Studio 2019. Um, you know, I will just tell people naming is really really hard. Uh, there's plenty of people that are probably unhappy with me already from from not calling this .NET Core 4. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're welcome to ask why we didn't do that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> why didn't you do that, Scott? <laughs> um, it was it, it was funny. We actually presented to for folks who don't know, Scott Guthrie is the uh, executive vice president for the, that my group is under, and we presented .NET to Scott a, a few months ago, and and he was kind of going, why why are you calling this five? You built all this name brand up around core, um, but the but the reality on the on the naming was. We thought that having .NET Framework 4.8 and .NET Core 4 uh, feels really confusing. Um, and the reality mm-hmm. is we want, to, we want to send a message to our customers that the future is .NET 5, .NET 6, .NET 7. And so we purposely versioned it higher than .NET Framework 4.8. Um, and we dropped the core. Um, so it feels like it's, you know, our, our, our real goal here is to unify the product back into a single brand again. You know, it, it kind of fragmented over the years with, I mean, it really fragmented. There was .NET Compact, there was Windows Phone, yeah. there was uh, there was .NET Windows 8. There was all these .NETs, and and really, we want to get back to being just a simple. <clears throat> there's a .NET, and that's all there is. And so for that, we had to drop the core, and then the version five was to be above any of the previous versions of even .NET yeah. Framework, because really, if you're a brand new customer, I want you to think .NET five is the newest thing. Yeah, really simple. Yeah, exactly. So I did want to read you something because I I went out on uh, on Hacker News and I you know there were comments on the on the release of uh, of .NET five. So th- this is like you know you've I'm sure you've you've read this or heard this, but you'll like this anyway. But it's 
Um, congratulations to the team. Microsoft has made exceptional strides in terms of performance and compatibility. The whole vision is what um, is what is really impressive, not any individual part. It is cross-platform, open source, and has almost complete coverage of the old .NET APIs. The new CS Proj format is vastly superior. The old .NET CLI is a pleasure to use, or the, sorry, the new .NET CLI is a pleasure to use. Um, many of the surrounding libraries like ASP.NET, Kestrel, Link, Entity Framework Core, System.Text.JSON, et cetera, are all best in class. Like, I thought that was great. You know, hearing that from the community and... Like, I just take credit because I'm at the same company. I'm like, oh, yeah, that was totally me. I had nothing to do with it. But I'm like, that's awesome. I just, you know, I, that, that that gives me really good feelings, though. But I, I just love hearing that from the, the community. So obviously, you're doing something right. Uh, it's, it's been a, a long journey, actually. It's, it's, uh, it's yeah, it's yeah, been- there, it was, it was painful at certain steps. I know. I mean, you had to, you had to make, there, there were leaps of faith that you had to make along the way that this would work out in the end. I still pinch myself, honestly. Um, yeah. and, and for fun, I can share my screen, right? Sure. Are we just, are we just, is this, is this, is the video being published as well? Or is it? No, the video won't go out with it. We can, we can describe what we're seeing. Okay. Well, I'm going to share with you folks uh, something and we can, we can talk about it because this is kind of fun. I shared this on a community standup a while ago. Let me find this. Sharing has not been working for me recently either. So let me know if this doesn't work. I can see it. Okay. Um, So if you take a look at that, Mm -hmm. read the date. July wow. Okay. I'm just like, is this like top secret future stuff? It's July 2013. Project this, A, okay, cloud.net. This is the original deck uh, that we put together back in 2013. Yeah. Um, of what would eventually become .NET Core. Nice. Um, and uh, I will. Yeah. So this is right when I started at Microsoft. It would have been, I think, a month before this. That's awesome. So <clears throat> we're looking at a slide now that says uh, Project K. Uh, that was the code name for for .NET Core before there was a .NET Core, mm-hmm. um, and it was called Project K because there was a, a thing that we had built on ASP.NET called uh, Project Katana. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what Katana was was <clears throat> it was a framework that decoupled the web framework from all the underlying text. Because if if you if you go back in in time and think about .NET framework, .NET framework and ASP.NET was ASP.NET was basically welded to the IS web server. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the web server that we built, we, you know, way back in the day, we still build. Um, but yep. ASP.NET was basically welded to it. And but when, what Project Katana was, was it was the first project where we tried to unstart, start unwelding ASP.NET away from IIS and then away from Windows. Um, and so then once you, you know, unweld yourself from Windows and IIS, the next thing you can do is build a, a framework on top of that. Um, and so Project K was the envisioning of, uh, I'll read the slide here for people that are on the that listening, mm-hmm. lean composable .NET stack that provides a fami- familiar and modern framework for web and cloud scenarios. A small core CLR, um, there was no core CLR back in this time, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, that only contains the fundamental building blocks. This, this meant, you know, don't bring uh, <clears throat> a warehouse uh, to, to, mm-hmm. to serve a web page, just bring what you need. Uh, framework to be an ecosystem of packages, this means we were not going to go bake everything into the framework so it could not be decoupled. Right. Very simple packaging, versioning, and servicing rules. True side-by-side that allows for breaking changes. Uh, and, and then um, not a Windows component, meaning it's mm-hmm. not built into Windows. Um, so and, it's you did, and, and you did all of this. We did all of this, and we did, we, but we did even more. So there's one missing piece on this slide, and, and you've already said the, right, the word today. Mm-hmm. Um, What's missing on this slide? Can you can you find the one missing thing that we've? Castro. Uh, open source. Oh, open source. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, back in this era, this was this was pre Satya. Um, I don't think we thought we could do something that was fully open source, and so it wasn't even listed in this in the slide as an option. It was not until mm-hmm. we came and reviewed this deck with um, Scott Guthrie and Jason Zander um, that it was, I believe it was Jason Zander that goes. He goes well, why is it not open source? And we're like, oh, um, and so, and, it's an uh, option. Okay. but, but the thing that we call .NET core and the thing that we call .NET five today, um, actually was, uh, was began all the way back in, in 2013. So that's, you know, amazing. that's seven years ago, we shipped the first version of the, of, of, of .NET core, um, technically in the summer of 2016, but really, it was not it was not included in Visual Studio um, and had proper tooling support until March of 2017. Mm-hmm. So I 
I, I really think that we've been alive really for, uh, you know, a little over three years. Yeah. And, and frankly, like, I mean, there were some steps there that, especially in the, those early days, like it was, it was definitely a, a path for only for those that were very daring and had, you know, very specific things that they were trying to do. I mean, um, I tried bringing an application over and it was, it was, it was not great, <laughs> but, but what's, what's funny is like, if, if, if you are that person who has procrastinated and now you want to bring something over, I feel like it's easier than it's ever been. It, it is. I was going to say version one of, of .NET core was mm. painful. Yeah. Um, but, but <clears throat> as painful as it was, um, at the time, .NET Core 1.0 primarily just had ASP.NET. Uh, that was all that was really in .NET Core at the time. <clears throat> it had MVC, Web API, and and I believe it, it. I don't know if we had Razor Pages or not yet in that version. I think it just had MVC and Web API. Um, but even that version gained uh, quite a bit of traction. And I think the traction it gained was because the cloud was at a point where uh, being able to run on Linux and be able to run in containers was becoming super important. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had .NET customers that would literally come to us and say, we, as a company, are not allowed to run projects that are not open source. So we can't depend on a non-open source framework. Um, so it checked that box. <laughs> and we had companies that came to us as well saying that it had to run on Linux. And so most of the people that adopted 1.0 were the people that had a business requirement to be open source or on Linux. And they were willing to, um, to take the, the hit of, of using it on 1.0. It wasn't, you know... There was not a lot of APIs in 1.0. 1.0 was really trend back. It was the original vision. Our, our, <clears throat> our, our, our original vision was really to basically, hey, all these APIs that, that you know, I'm going to use a terrible word. They were bad. They shouldn't be in the, in the product. Um, <laughs> and, and so we, we over re- removed stuff at, at mm-hmm. that point. Um, and it was 2.0 that was when we, we kind of realized that and we brought a lot of the, the APIs back. That was when .NET Standard shipped. Um, and that brought all the APIs that, that were the same across Xamarin, .NET Framework, and .NET Core. Um, so basically, that, that was pretty much any .NET API that was cross-platform and could work on all three of those platforms showed back up in, in, in .NET Core 2. Uh, and then 3 brought the, the kind of remaining pieces. Primarily, it brought WinForms and WPF. Um, and that was the .NET Core 3 marked the end of bringing anything from .NET Framework as well. So we've you know, if you're a customer and you're looking at .NET 5 and you're like, well, it doesn't have this, it's not going to have it. Um, we're not going to bring any more APIs. We we do have a philosophy, which is if it's if you were going to build a brand new project today, would you use that API? And if the answer is no, then we don't want to bring that API. Um, mm. We we have brought some of those into what we call the Windows Compat Pack. Um, we have a NuGet package called the Windows Compat Pack, which brings a bunch of Windows only APIs. Um, but one of our core goals still is not to go and pollute, you know, .NET Framework was something where any team in Microsoft that built something new would just shove it in .NET Framework. Mm-hmm. Right. <clears throat> but now it's lean and mean. And, and now we want to be lean and mean. So. Mm-hmm. Okay. So as I was doing a little bit of research for this episode, uh, I came across a little statement saying that uh, in the before .NET 5 came out, both Bing.com as well as .dot.net have been running on the pre-release versions. You know, what kind of learnings and uh, insights have you gotten by running those two big sites on the pre-release versions? I'll, <clears throat> I'll give you a cool insight on that. That's a that's a great uh, catch, Carl. Um, so we've been running the .net website on on our newest builds for, for a long time. I, we didn't start it all back in one, but it was some probably in the three wave is probably when we started doing that. Um, in the three wave, <clears throat> three was very interesting that we shipped, I think it was 3.1 and, and Bing at the time was only running on our release builds and we shipped 3.1 and we had a major regression only for Bing. I mean, there was something that we, that we missed. Um, and you know, we missed it because it was something that only if you're running it like Bing scale, would you've actually seen it. Um, and that was when we realized we need to get more of our customers running the preview builds. So we don't have a miss like that. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, once again, our test machines aren't going to, you know, do a million requests a second or anything crazy like that for uh, any periods of time. And so that, I believe it was it might have been a garbage collection issue that we ran into. Um, and that was kind of kind of led us to, you know, getting some of the teams to move on to the new the, the newest builds as soon as possible. Um, 
by the way, we would love to have more of our, our overall customers try previews. And that's one of the, that might be one of the themes that we do in .NET 6. Today, <clears throat> you know, you know, we announced it at, at, at uh, .NET Conf that we have over 2 million .NET Core developers, .NET Core slash .NET 5 developers. Of those, like 10,000 is all that will actually try a preview build. Right. And so in, 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 in these in these customers and partners, I think I think the message to them should be if you really want to influence the product, that's the time to do it. You know, that's you when want- you're if you run into an issue or something, that's when you're listening. Once once it's in production and and shipped, like it just, you know, you can that can still get in there. You can report a bug and you can go through that process. But like when the code is open, when the patient already has, you know, is already opened up, that's the time to, you know, say, hey, like, I think you left a tool in there. Exactly. It takes us a month to kind of respond at this point. I mean, once yeah. we, you know, you know, you know blame me, um, November is not a great time to release products um, because as soon as we release .NET Core, you know, .NET 5, um, you know, there's holidays at the end of, end of end of November for people that live in the United States. Mm-hmm. And then there's holidays around the world in December. Um, and so we kind of go onto a smaller staff of people. And so shipping an update in December is actually a challenge for us. Um, and we're also trying to give people a break after shipping something. Um, and so the timing's not great. Uh, but I think all up, uh, you know, getting more of our customers to try the preview builds will help us. And, and, and there's, there's things that we can do as well. So like one of the problems today, if you want to try a preview build of, of .NET, you have to be on a preview build of VS. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that I'm going to see if I can change in the .NET 6 wave. I would love the existing VS to just pick up and go, oh, I see that there's a .NET 6 on the box. I will let you let you use that. You know, it's not going to be in the installer, but if you put it on the box, it's supported because, yeah. getting, you know, getting a customer to use one preview thing is one thing. Getting them to use two preview things, especially something like Visual Studio, which is a, you know, kind of a large footprint application. And, you know, you don't want to break, you know, any of the other apps that are not using .NET 5. Um, but uh one of our goals, and, and, and Carl, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll give you even more insight on this. One of our, you know, there's part of our teams whose job is to help internal ter- internal teams at Microsoft move to .NET 5 or .NET Core 3.1. Um, and that's primarily because the, the, you know, performance has been a huge part of the .NET Core releases and the .NET 5 release. Um, and so if you're an internal, you know, internal team uh, running .NET, you're running a cloud service, you're likely going to save a, a chunk of money by moving to, to this tech. So for example, internally, we see most most teams save between 25 and 30% of their uh, cost to run their service by moving it on to this tech. Um, and the benefit which, is, being- which is huge. I mean, that's, <clears throat> that's huge. Because like, I, I assume then like the, the actual performance improvement has got to be even way bigger than that, right? Like you're just saying overall. <laughs> right. Um, that's amazing. The- and the, the the cool thing is they didn't they didn't rewrite the apps they just ported them as they were so they didn't they didn't go optimize them they just hey mm-hmm. the existing app just runs faster if you put it on the new tech um, but one of the reasons we're trying to get more of them on the new tech is um, you know my external customers um, I don't expect to see you know I'm not going to see what their crash data is and stuff like that but my internal teams um, we want access to that crash data there's nothing better than a, better for us than having you know, a bunch of huge internal Azure services run on on this technology, and then for me to see the telemetry coming off the technology to see what the crash rates they're having are, what the problems they are, which will then make the product better for the general public. And so, you know, Carl, is the reason we run it on on our our website and Bing is to hopefully catch stuff. Um, so our overall customers get the benefit of seeing that running something that's already been you know battle tested by ten or fifteen or twenty or thirty huge internal services. We we run. Um, uh, one of the teams that we just we just ported recently, we saved them eight million dollars a year. Uh, so just by in 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 Azure cost, you know, just just by moving to to .NET Core 3.1, they save eight million bucks. And that's a that's smaller huge. service. Um, some of these we think will be more of like you know twenty thirty million dollars a year. So that's awesome. So what does the average um, upgrade experience look like when migrating from a previous version of .NET Core? to .NET 5? Um, so .NET Core 3.1 to 5 is actually a pretty smooth transition. Um, in many cases, you're going to change uh, your CSProj file. It's going to have a reference to 3.1 inside of it. You can just change that to 5 and press recompile until your application runs. We have a, uh, a doc on the internet that actually describes all the breaking changes between 3.1 and 5. Um, and that's a good reference to have open uh, <clears throat> to give you things to, to expect when that happens. Um, I, I, I do want to say that 
you know, and, and if you look on Twitter, there was plenty of customers that basically said they moved from three, one to five and they did it in half a day or less than half a day. Sometimes it was just hours or when there's some customers that just changed the string and it was good. Um, but I, I do want to call out that if you've been on the .NET Core journey, moving from .NET Core one to two was painful and moving from two to three was very painful. Um, and that's because we were still changing lots of the internal aspects of how the project goes together. Uh, .NET Core 1.0 was all packages, uh, which sounded like it was a good idea to us at the time. It was not a good idea. Um, so we kind of reversed that in, in, in the .NET Core 2 wave. Um, so I, I will say, if you've been burned by trying to move from .NET Core 1 to 2 or 2 to 3, uh, the transition from 3 to 5 should be much better. And the transition from 5 to 6, as we are working on the .NET 6 planning, one of our goals is it should take somebody no more than 10 minutes to, to port a project from .NET uh, 5 to 6. So as we mature, and I think Jason called this out earlier, it's a more, more mature product. As it's maturing, the uh, the ease to move from a version to a version should, should be much easier. Mm-hmm. This whole thing just feels, <clears throat> I just love how lightweight and quick everything feels now. And, um, you know, so I created... Um, I grabbed the containers for the build environment and for like the runtime environment and uh, in the build environment, you know, just created like a, you know, I just did the hello, the .NET, um, .NET new console and ran that. And that takes, uh, looks like 68 milliseconds to actually build that, which is nice. I always, that always frustrated me about .NET um, whenever you'd have one line of code like that and you'd say, hey, build this. And it's just like, it's like, you know, spinning up and then like doing something. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, I just want you to print hello world. So like, I'm really impressed how lightweight the experience is out of the box like that. And um, yeah, within Docker, I mean, I think the runtime one is using two megabytes, it looks like. And then even the build one is using like 15 megabytes on my Linux server. Like it's using nothing. I mean, it's it's really similar to, you know, the open source tools that I would spec like Node or something like that. Um, just super, super lightweight. I love it. Yeah. Another thing that you just touched on, Jason, is mm-hmm. the uh, the smaller container image sizes, mm-hmm. too. And I know that's really uh, important to a lot of partners. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I was going to say it's, it, you're you're going to you're going to laugh, Jason. We we don't think that we're we're lightweight enough. Um, so <laughs> one of the one of the one of the big waves in .NET six is is what we call interloop. And so for mm-hmm. us, the interloop is I'm a developer. I change a line of code. I want to rerun my application. How long does that take? Mm-hmm. Where .NET is amazing today is runtime performance. So you know if you can if you compare us to Go or Java. Um, you'll find that we do really, really well. And in, in mm-hmm. many of the, there's, there's the public tech and power benchmark, uh, which tries a bunch of things. And yeah, you're just here. killing it. I mean, you were, I mean, just, it, it's interesting. A lot of people went over to node because of the pure performance. And at the time .NET had, you, you know, with, if you were using async had great performance, but now, I mean, it is just like absurdly good performance. And, and we're, we're, we, you know, every version in, in, the performance changes by, we, we increased by about 30%. Those tech and power benchmarks yeah. got about 30% faster across the board from three to five. Amazing. So we think our runtime performance is, is top of class, um, mm-hmm. uh, amazing. We don't think the inner loop is good enough yet. And so one of the big one of the big themes in .NET 6 is gonna be to increase the, the per- performance of the inner loop. That's one of the areas where things like JavaScript especially is really, really good. It's got a good startup, startup speed. Um, it's runtime speed isn't great, but it's got an amazing startup speed. Um, and so we wanna find a way to be kind of the best of both of those. Um, and so you will see um, us dramatically decrease the amount of time to change a line of code and get your app to refresh in the browser is going to be much better in, in six. Um, and we're not just going to change it for the browser tech. We're, we're doing that for Xamarin, for the mobile tech. Uh, we're going to try, try to do this across the board. .NET all up should be faster. That um, We'll have to get back on this show a, a year from now and see what that uh, build time is. Mm-hmm. Uh, see if it's 10 milliseconds versus 68 or whatever it was. Yeah. I did want to ask too, the, the new Apple M1 chip, is there a support for that? Um, Is that not yet, okay. <clears throat> not yet, but it's coming soon. We have, we have arm support, uh, mm-hmm. today. Um, so, you know, one of the cool things about .NET Core is we have arm 32 and arm 64 support. Yeah. Um, but we want to have, you know, Apple Silicon support as well. Um, yeah. I don't and know to be clear, it'll, it'll run under Rosetta, I'm sure, but, uh, native support, I guess is what we're talking it, about. It definitely runs under Rosetta today. You can like yeah. Visual Studio for Mac runs, um, and, uh, under Rosetta. I mean, we fixed a few bugs to, 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 to make some of those scenarios work, but native native is coming. Uh, that tech is amazing tech. I I think that tech is going to change the industry. I 
mm-hmm. you know, just reading the articles and, and uh, we, we obviously have teammates that have um, some of those M1 based machines um, <clears throat> because we're, you know, we're very curious, you know, to make sure that .NET is amazing on those ARM devices. And that, that said, I, we, sh- we should also talk about ourselves, you know, when, like Microsoft and Windows. So one of the features that we, we lit up in .NET 5 is we lit up support for um, ARM64 support for Windows machines. So you can actually, if you have a Surface Pro X, uh, that's the ARM64 version of the Surface. Um, we have native support for that in .NET 5. Um, and sometime next year, we'll have native support for the UI stacks on ARM64 uh, on those devices as well. We have WinForms already running um, and WPF is gonna come next. And so you would be able to take any .NET desktop application um, <clears throat> and compile it so it can run natively on any of the Windows ARM devices uh, sometime next year. That's super cool. And then I also noticed that you, you know, speaking of like lightweight, like you can actually define a program, like the whole main method and I saw that you can do it with, you can also do async, which is a, a lifesaver because I always forget how to do that in uh, in Maine. So what is what is the thinking there? I mean, you, you listed it as being as a nice way for like new developers to get started. But I mean, doesn't doesn't this also give you like a nice way to like do like a script? It's point of being a light way to do a script. Um, okay. uh, Richard Lander on the team rewrote all of our IoT <clears throat> samples to use top level programs. The feature you're talking about is what we call top level programs. Okay. Um, and it was meant to meant to be. Once again, we are always comparing .NET to other tech. Mm-hmm. And it's like if I just want to write "Hello World" to the screen, yep. why do I need a class? Why do I need yep. a special named me- method? Exactly. Node was <laughs> like that. I mean, that, that Node was just so beautiful and like it was deceptively easy to start. You just say console.log, "Hello World." <laughs> and, and and so uh, with with you know .NET five and C sharp nine, we added that capability. Also. One of our intents was being able to build a microservice in like 10 lines of code. How many lines of code does it take to actually build a web app that can respond to a request? That's actually a great Um, point. So I did just write, you know, so I did the .NET new console, which does give you the main and everything. And then what I did is I deleted everything except for using system. And then I said console.writeline hello world. And And then I built it, compiled it, it worked. So that's very cool. I love it. So... There's another cool feature that you should you should try to try out sometime as, as well, which is called records. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, for people on the, that are listening, the, the, what, what records is, is meant to be about is how many of us write the same thing a million times. And I mean, what you need is I want an object object that represents a person. So mm-hmm. I create a class and I call it person, and then I do a string uh, first name, a string last name, and I do a get and a set on each of those. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe I have a, an address with a string and a get set. <clears throat> and so that ends up being <clears throat> there's the class, there's the three fields, and the and you know, if, if I just took all the white space out and put braces around that stuff and made it look really ugly, I could do that in four four lines of code. If I space it out correctly to make it clean looking, it would probably be five or six lines of code. Well, with a record, you can just say record person and then say, uh, open parentheses, say string first name, string last name, string address, close parentheses, semicolon, and you're done. It mimics all of that code. You don't have to write those getters and setters and all that kind of stuff. Um, and in a web world, especially when we have all these return types from your APIs, um, imagine writing your return type in just one line of code. And so it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, these things sound simple, uh, but in, in the keynote at .NET Conf, um, I was, I would, I did this for, with Scott Hanselman. I showed him the night before we were we were demoing and practicing, and and I'm like, watch this, and he's like, oh yeah. It's like it's just seeing a developer's eyes light up when they see how they can reduce, you know, five or six lines of code, or you know, if you have a big class, it could be ten or fifteen, mm-hmm. twenty lines of code uh, yeah. that you just write with the same junk every single time. Mm-hmm. You know, type, name, get set. Um, right, and then that could help with like JSON deserialization as well, right? Because the object that you're hydrating into could be pretty quick to make yes super quick to make and so i can look at one of my old applications and i had what we call it was my, the the a, a class library called the data library mm-hmm. and all it was was you know 80 files full of these huge classes with that stuff in it you could literally take that entire data library and reduce it down into one file probably with a whole page full of records and you're done 
I love that. So I do have a question for, I think I probably asked you this before and I'm just going to keep asking in every version until it's a feature. <laughs> um, so, so if you have a JSON document, let's say, you know, going back to your example where you have like first name, last name and address, am I able to declare, you know, create a record that says first name and last name and don't have the address in there and then deserialize that, uh, or deserialize the JSON into that object and somehow access from a static context, dot first name, dot last name, but then from a dynamic context, say, dot address. So um, you can keep asking me for this feature. I'll talk to Mads Torgerson again. He's, Mads is the person on the team that you know kind of drives the C-sharp I think language. it was called like wire formats or something at one point. <laughs> um, you know, we, we do have dynamics and stuff like that in .NET. Yeah. Um, but, I, but, but I it's, do. But it's, it's always like, you know, you're either static or you're dynamic. I want, I want, want the best of both. Of both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the whole point is like, you have a, you know, like I said, I, I have this G giant JSON file and, uh, well, I can actually, I'll just give you a concrete example. I have a website that, that goes and pulls tracking data for, for packages from like UPS, FedEx, whatever. And they respond, I think all of them respond now in JSON, but there's a whole bunch of stuff I'm interested in. There's a lot that I'm not interested in. So the things that I'm interested in, I want to put that into my record, you know, my record type. I say, this, these are the things I'm interested in and I want to statically read these. And then any other fields, just bring them along for the ride. And then later, if there's like a quick feature I want to add in at some level, I can just say like, oh, dot, you know, this dynamic thing. Yep. So. Well, we, we, we have talked all up many times about, um, you know, Link mm -hmm. was the way that we took SQL <clears throat> and we, and we C-sharpified it. Mm -hmm. um, and so you didn't have to write SQL. You actually just wrote, you know, expressions right. in C-sharp and we converted those to um, we, we've had many discussions many times about, you know, JSON, as you said, is the, is the most common format. And we're all of us, no matter what, what we're doing, we're just writing code to convert things from JSON to, to, to static, to, to, to strongly typed objects and back and right. forth. And is there a language thing there? Um, I'll, you know, I know Mads has thought about it and, and, and might be still thinking about it. <laughs> um, but it is something that I, I've asked, is that, the, is that the next link moment for us is to go take, you know, that, you know, you, you want the benefits of the, of the, of the, of the strongly typed language yeah. with a little bit of loosey-goosey so you can actually mm -hmm. have some dynamic in there as well. And Yeah, because yeah, there's so always this debate about static versus dynamic, and I'm always like, why not both? Like, let's, let's take the advantages of both. Like, TypeScript does a really nice job at it. I was gonna say that's that's one of the areas that JavaScript, you know, is is amazing mm -hmm. at, you know, primarily because JSON is a is a native format of yep. of JavaScript, and you know, the question is, you know, this is what I've asked Mads before: can we make JSON the same thing for for .NET, or does it get too too weird? But uh, right, I know right. he's looking at that and thinking about that. This is, you that's know, it's awesome. one of the most common things we do as programmers. Cool, cool. Yeah, uh, one of the other features that I kind of wanted to talk about because we don't have time for them all because there's so many, but it kind of fits into the, you know faster, more performance, smaller size. Uh, but in this case, developers just typing less. Uh, I believe in the blog post, it was under fit and finish. But my favorite feature is omitting the type when you're using a new expression. That way I can, if I have a list already, I could just, you know, dot add new and I don't have to tell it to type because it already can infer that. Yep. Um, you know, that's, that's, that you'll, you'll just find, you know, all up, if you look at C-sharp seven, eight, nine, um, a lot of the features are, are actually these reduce the typing. You know, we, 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 there's this strong tension, um, of not making the language too weird. Um, um, I'm not going to name any languages, but there's lots of languages that have a bunch of weird symbols and characters and stuff that, that are optimizations. We're trying not to go that far. Um, cause you know, then it makes it unintelligible for the most part. Um, the cool thing, Carl, that, you know, in, in, the, in the stuff you're talking about is it looks natural enough that as a regular C-sharp developer, you could look at that and go, oh, I know what that does. Um, and so that's why I have to give, you know, the language people uh, that work on our, all of our languages, C-sharp, F-sharp, and VB, a lot of credit for trying to, you know, let's make it more dense, but let's not make it more terse. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So... You know, one question that I have that's kind of related to this is how many of these features are things that have been on your backlog for a while, but because you made the investment into Roslyn in the past, that having that enhanced capability set that Roslyn gives you makes it easier for some of these new features? Um, definitely having, uh, you know, an easier to, to touch compiler. You know, the compiler used to be, you know, 
I'll, I'll say hearsay, you know, the compiler used to be written in C++. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so Roslyn was a huge push uh, to, to, you know, write the compiler in C Sharp um, um, and, and make it open as well. So um, anybody can grab the code for it. Um, so yes, you know, it's all that all that stuff enables us to have this faster pace. Where we actually now we we now plan to ship ship a new C sharp every year. Um, and so you know it used to be that there'd be two or three years or four years between a language release, and now we've got this thing dialed in where we can actually add stuff every single year. Some features obviously will take more than one release, um, but yeah, that that, uh, that that's one benefit of Roslyn. The other benefit of Roslyn to me really is is having the the IDE. Uh, be able to be able to use Roslyn. So a lot of the features that you see in the IDE are coming from Roslyn as well. So any of the things that the code fixes and stuff like that, uh, analyzers which can go and and look for common common patterns or things that might be wrong in your app. Um, you know the the Roslyn is not just a compiler; it's an actual full tool chain that can be used both by the IDE, um, you know, and by us as we write code. So it's a, a huge huge leap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you really touched on something, you know, I'm just looking at the size of the list of, you know, things that are part of C Sharp 9 and, and part of .NET 5. And, you know, this is easily, you know, in order of magnitude larger than what was being uh, released in the full framework uh, .NET days. It, it's, it's, you know, it's funny. I'll, I'll say something funny with with uh, this year, you know, being a weird year. Um, we actually scaled our .NET 5 plans back quite a bit um, when the COVID pandemic kind of started. Uh, we weren't sure what you know impacts it was going to have on our our workforce, the collaboration we were going to have by not being in the offices and stuff like that. And so I love it when you tell me that you know .NET 5 looks like it's full of all these features because um, I think we originally had overdone it and uh, thought we were going to do a lot more. But I. I really want to talk about the .NET framework thing thing that you mentioned, Carl. That's a that's a amazing point, um, and I, I can give some, some some reasons why it is that way. Uh, the challenge we had with .NET framework, um, and the reason we don't add stuff to it anymore, is because it is a part of the Windows operating system, and mm-hmm. it's part of and, and there can only be one on the computer. Um, and so, if I make a change in .NET framework, it gets printed to over a billion machines in a very short period of time. Um, the chances of me breaking something are very high. Um, and so we 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 gotten to the point in .NET Framework that we we only would do additive things. We wouldn't change something because we change something we don't know what what might break. Um, and so the reason that you're seeing us move at such a such a much faster pace is well with .NET 5 and .NET Core 3.1 you can put them both on the box. And putting .NET 5 on a box will not break a 3.1 application. And putting 3.1 on a box won't break a .NET 5 application mm-hmm. because we've this is, this is where you go back in time and you and you learn of the mistakes that you made in the in the in the older product, um, and you make sure you don't make those mistakes again. Mm-hmm. And so the side by side capability is what enables us to do this much faster form of iteration um, because we're no longer super worried about breaking applications like we were before. Before, you know, fixing a bug in .NET Framework might break a, a ton of machines, um, and we've had releases where we've broken uh, apps that are used by millions and millions of people, and so. Uh, um, the side-by-side capability is what really enables us to go at this fast pace. Um, that said, we, we still try not to break things. You know, um, if you want to move from a, a 3.1 app to a 5 app, we want to make that as, uh, as easy as possible. Um, so, you know, our goal is not to break a lot of stuff, but at least with side-by-side, if there's something wrong in the product, we have the ability to fix it now. And we, yeah. You know, well, and the, I, and the fact that everything is so quick and lightweight makes me much more likely to, start to separate out those services into, you know, separate Docker containers and start communicating between them. And I know there's been, you know, performance increases in gRPC as well. So like just decoupling my app and even running three different versions of, of .NET is not as scary to me now. You know, I, I ship the version with it in a container. It's its own thing. And, and then I just don't worry about it anymore. It works. It works. And, and we, you know, that's, we have that. There's even a crazier feature that we have, which is with the single legacy feature, mm-hmm. which is um, I want to go make an app. Let's say I'm going to build a desktop app. Maybe it's a WinForm or WPF app. Because I want to put this as a desktop app. Um, you can take a .NET. You can with .NET 5. You can go build one of these applications, and there's a box. You can. It's it's too hidden in our tools. We'll fix that in the next wave, hopefully. Uh, and you can select an option, and we'll take your app, and we'll take .NET, 
and we'll combine them into a single file. And so that app does not require any .NET to be on the box at all. You can take that WinForm application, put it on a USB drive, hand it to somebody, they can plug the drive in their computer and it will just work. Um, and so we have the ability to do that um, as well. That's awesome because I, I remember one of the first uh, .NET desktop apps I ever wrote back in university. I was really proud. I had worked on something that I was, I worked in a manufacturing plant at a time and it was something that was to help streamline the plant. And I brought it in to show it and it didn't work. And I was too young. I didn't know why, but it was that exact problem. Um, I was just talking to a customer a, a few weeks ago and uh, they, they had a, a legacy desktop style application and it was a .NET application. Um, and they were asking me, they're like, you know, this thing requires this huge installer. Um, and it's, it, it ended up not being a .NET problem. It ended up being they were using um, third party components. Um, and so they were having to take one installer and then chain other installers. And it ended up being like, you know, they had to go ship 100 megs to a customer to, to, for the installer. Um, and so I love the way the world has changed to the point that uh, tech just doesn't work that way. You know, it used, used to be, you know, you have to install a third party component has to have its own installer. Just put the dang DLL in the box and call it good. You shouldn't have to. But we, we used to I guess we've moved from this global install all the stuff on the machine to more of the carry the stuff with the app. Uh, and, and it's just a much better model. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And especially with the investments of being able to remove all the cruft that you don't need. That really helps keep that, you know, single executable, you know, fairly lean at the same time. That, that was an area that we, uh, you know, that, that tech requires you to be careful. Um, we, the, the tech that Carl's talking about is something we, we call this the linker. Um, and in .NET 5, you can build a, a, a the, you can do .NET New Web uh, or .NET New Empty, I think, uh, might be the one. Uh, you can, it's a small microservice kind of style application. You can turn the linker on and that single exe will be about 18 megs. Um, that is your application and .NET all in 18 megs. You copy that to, to your server and you're good. Um, now, as I said, that's we don't really overhype that because that is the tech is kind of scary because it's what happens is our, our uh, compiler chain looks and goes, I don't see any references to this DLL. Um, and because I don't see any references to the DLL, I'll just cut the DLL out. Um, now, what if your application uses like reflection uh, or some other method to dynamically load that, well, then it can break. Um, and um, so our hope is in the future to provide better tools to you to tell you about those breaks um, on the front side so um, you can be more assured that your app will actually run in, in production. Um, and so that's an area we will you'll continue to see us get better at. .NET 5, we took a huge step. ASP.NET, because it uses dependency injection, um, means it's doing a bunch of that dynamic stuff already. And so the linker and ASP.NET did not agree with each other at all because ASP.NET's dynamically loading all these things. The linker cuts them all out. Uh, but in .NET 5, um, David Fowler on the team spent a bunch of time attributing uh, ASP.NET, uh, which means it tells the linker, don't, don't throw this out. And so we did a much better job of attributing a bunch of stuff uh, to make those those default experiences work better. And you'll see, you'll see this. This will be something we'll continue to work on and get better at, um, you know, version to version. Um, yeah, there's a whole bunch of switches too. There's another one called ready to run. Another hidden thing that people don't think about. So, you know, you hear this term a lot of times, AOT. Uh, AOT stands for ahead of time compile. It's kind of like if you build a Go application, it doesn't actually use a jitter to, mm -hmm. you know, .NET, .NET and Java uh, and even JavaScript. Basically, dynamically, when, they, when, you're, when the app is loading, you're converting the, the, the code that you have into native machine language that can run on the, de on the device. Uh, another option we have in .NET is something called ready to run. And you can check that box and we'll actually do the JIT for you uh, before uh, the app runs, um, which means we'll sh we'll, the app will get a little fatter, uh, larger in size, but it'll start faster. Um, and so there's a whole bunch of, of really cool performance styles that are all through the product that uh, we don't make enough. They're so hidden deep in the product. Um, and so it's one of my goals in the, in the future waves of tooling in .NET 6 is to get those more uh, discoverable so people can 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 use them because you can really make your app go a lot faster and, and a lot smaller, you know, using all those features. Makes sense. Now, I know you could talk about this for hours, but Blazor, um, any, anything you want to talk about around Blazor? And I, I am kind of curious. I'm going to ask you, I don't know, maybe this is an easy question or a difficult question, but like, you know, frameworks like React are getting popular. So like, 
somebody listening to this who um, is trying to figure out, like, should I go down a blazer route because I do, I know .NET or should I look at something like React? Like what what's the what's the deal with blazer these days? Um, yeah, blazer is is uh, blazer started off, inter- inter- interestingly enough, as an experiment. Yeah. Um, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, there was a, a, a conference in Europe and uh, Steve Sanderson on the team was trying to come up with a, with a theme for the talk. And uh, he wrote the first prototype of Blazor for that talk. For people that don't know what Blazor is, <laughs> um, Blazor lets you actually write uh, a full stack web application um, using only C Sharp. Um, you don't have to write JavaScript um, and you don't have to use a, uh, a web framework. Like, you know, there's, there's plenty of popular web frameworks. There's React is super popular. Uh, Vue is, is fairly popular. Uh, Angular. Uh, was was one of the ones that was really popular a couple of years ago, um, and we we did this experiment and people loved it. Um, and uh, because of the feedback on the on on the feature, it ended up being a, a, a you know we turned it into a full product. We shipped it in .NET Core uh, 3.0. Um, and what I would tell you, Jason, is is uh, the big thing that Blazor does that we see for most of our customers is it enables you to actually build applications even faster. Mm-hmm. Um, even if you're building your, your you know, let's say you're a Node.js application with a React front end, uh, you're going to use a variety of tools. You're going to use tools like Webpack. Uh, you're going to build a, it, the tool chain is pretty complicated. So things that people liked about Blazor is they liked the fact that it was a single, simple tool chain, the same tool chains they, they, they've used in the past to build a .NET application, uh, to build a full stack web application. Uh, plenty of people thought that, you know, being able to write the, the, client-side code in C-sharp. Um, it meant that you could take an existing server developer that is not really a front-end developer, and they could build front-end feeling applications. Um, and then there's a, a other feedback we hear is just amazing productivity. Um, I've had two customers in the last two or three months that have come by, and they basically stood up you know, full single-page applications in under a week uh, using Blazor. Um, so, and it's also, it's the fastest-growing workload in .NET today. So of all, you know, whether it's ASP.NET, WinForms, WPF, um, Blazor is the is the fastest growing tech. Uh, we have over a hundred thousand Blazor Blazor users in less than a year. Um, so it's it's got lots of momentum. Um, to me, Blazor off, also offers a couple of cool opportunities. Um, you know, you mentioned React. Um, you know, there's Angular, there's Vue. Um, Blazor can run two ways. It can run uh, server side or it can run client side. Um, if you run a Blazor as a, as, a, as a web user, you wouldn't know which one uh, the developer has chosen. The app looks the same, reacts the same, okay. works exactly the same. A Blazor server application means that we're not really running any of the C-sharp code in the browser. What happens is, let's say you've got a, a, a form with a button and you click the button. We send a command back to the server. Uh, the server then renders the page on the server um, with whatever change the page has, and we send the diff back to the client. Uh, that means that a Blazor server application is doesn't have any, the page sizes are super small. There's right. no- And they could work on a little bit older browser as well then? It, it really doesn't, the browsers doesn't really matter. Um, okay. the, the big thing is we don't have to put a JavaScript framework in the browser. Right. So if you're building an Angular app, a React app, a Vue app, well, that, that JavaScript oh. framework has to be downloaded on the client. This means a Blazor server application can be like 50 bytes. Right. It's like that, the one, I, the, the button, the thing I was just describing, the actual cost uh, to render the application is about 50 bytes, yeah, um, which is amazing. So if you're trying to to build something for mobile um, and you want to have it be really, really fast, and, and you're building something for low data, maybe you're in a part of the world that doesn't have you know lots of data access, um, your remote location somewhere, um, a Blazor server application will 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 spend the least amount of data uh, required. There's also Blazor uh, WebAssembly. Uh, and for folks that don't know what WebAssembly is, WebAssembly is a is a spec implemented by the browsers. And to me, it democratizes the browser. The browser historically only has been able to run JavaScript. And with WebAssembly, I can run C++, I can run Java, I can run Go, I can run .NET. Um, it means you know, companies like Adobe have shown prototypes of taking things like Autodesk, and which is a C++ app, and they show it running in the browser because they <laughs> used WASM to, yeah. to basically compile their app into that. So to me, it democratizes the the, the browser. Um, and a Blazor WebAssembly app. Um, and by the way, you code these exactly the same. 
So your code doesn't have to change at all, whether you choose server or, or client or, or WASM. Uh, the code's exactly the same. The component model works exactly the same way, which is really cool. You can decide to switch this. We have like one of my customers, they develop on Blazor Server and they publish on Blazor WASM. Um, but the cool thing about WASM is, well, now we're running your .NET code live in the browser. Um, and this enables new scenarios. Uh, the primary one, primar the primarily big one is it means you can build a offline application. Um, because the C-sharp is in the browser, it doesn't have to make a call anywhere on the internet to do something. And so we, we did a demo at Build this year where we built a, an app that you run on your phone. And it was the app that if you're, you know, you rented a car, you drive back to the facility to turn your car in. This is the app where they would scan the, the barcode on the car. They would take pictures of any damage that might happen on the car. They would put the mileage in. The app runs completely offline. Um, and then when there is when there is Internet, it can it can wake up and, and make a call. Um, and that's the, you know, the, the primary difference between Blazor WASM versus Blazor Server. Um, if once you go down the Blazor WASM path, we offer you another checkbox in the tool chain, which is a PWA, um, which will give you uh, let you install a, an, a Blazor application as a desktop application. Uh, it'll show up in the start menu on Windows. It'll show up in the dock on Mac. Um, um, and so it gives you that ability to leverage your web skills to build a more of a desktop application. And then I'll I'll jump forward and think about what we're thinking in .NET 6. Um, you know, if you think of the world today, there's more web developers than there are, you know, desktop developers, whether it's WinForms, WPF, WinUI, Flutter, uh, you know, I would even, you know, there's more web people out there. And so we see this motion of, of people wanting to build web apps that run on the desktop. Um, you know, you've probably heard of Electron, which is the, the yep. way that, like, we're, we're in a Teams call right now. We're running an Electron app yep, right that's now. Right. Yep, exactly. Um, VS Code. VS Code is another great example. Slack. Um, mm -hmm. Well, I want to enable .NET developers to build an Electron-style application. So we're looking at putting a that was going to be my that was going to be my next question. It seems so uh, you were like leading up to that. So continue. Um, we're going to let you put a Blazor WebView tag inside of a Xamarin application. Um, and you might ask, well, why would I want to do this? Well, the reason Teams is an Electron application is because it, it wants to run native code on your machine as well. It wants to actually the video encoding and the audio encoding is not being done in the in, in the Electron app. It's being done with native code on the platform. And so the, the cool thing about having you build your Blazor application, you host it inside the Xamarin shell, um, but it's still because even, even though it's a web app, it now has access to the hard drive. It has access to the mic, uh, the cameras, all the physical things on the on the on the device. And that's why. You know, Spotify is an, an example of another Electron application. Dropbox is, you know, Dropbox needs to talk to your files. Spotify needs to play audio. Um, but but it gives you a mix of being able to build what we call hybrid apps, where it's a partial web application, which means your UI works the same on all the platforms, but it still has access to those native components. And that, that'll be one of the next steps in the Blazor journey is to give you, uh, you can do that today. There's an awesome open source project called Electron.net. Um, but it feels, once again, weird to me to like, Here's this beautiful .NET app, and let's host it inside of a Node.js um, JavaScript thing. Right. So of course we have to give you a, a .NET way of doing the same thing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So since you mentioned that this future tech, you know, would be running in Xamarin, is there a way that you're thinking about that you can kind of give existing Xamarin applications a way to kind of upgrade or migrate to that? Yes, definitely. Um, there's a prototype of this today. Um, if you Google for um, um, what's it called? I think it's called Blazor Mobile Binding. I just want to make sure I, I get it so you guys can put it in the show notes. Blazor. Yeah, it looks like that's a thing. Yeah. So um, there's an experimental pro project called uh, Mobile Blazor Bindings, um, and it is a prototype of what I'm describing now, um, where you can actually take a Xamarin app and uh, put a put a new new control in it, which is the web control. Um, that's and Carl, that's what you would do. You would take your existing Xamarin application, and you know instead of putting a button in uh, or a slider in, you would put a Blazor WebView in, uh, and then point that to your Blazor application, and we'll just host the Blazor app inside of your Xamarin app. Um, the project that I think Jason's looking it up. I'm seeing his reaction in his face. Yeah. <laughs> um, is a is a is a pretty cool project. That you can build an iOS, Android, Mac, Windows app with this. Um, and one of the demos that we have, we actually show a native button and a native label, uh, and then a Blazor application below that, and, and both sides can talk to each other. So when you press the button on the native side, it updates the native control. 
but it also updates the counter inside of the Blazor web app. If you press the button in the Blazor web app, it updates the native tech as well. So that's, um, but I, this is the, you know, I think the next thing that we'll do on the, on the Blazor path. Is a designer for some of these screenshots, but other than that, it's really cool tech. <laughs> yeah, well, these are. Yeah, this is super interesting because you know, you know, one of the things we haven't talked about is Electron. One of the the downsides is it's easy to not optimize it correctly. There's, I mean, VS Code is a really good example of something that just runs and feels super native, but there's a lot of Electron apps that just, you know, like, why is it using several gigs of my memory yeah. for doing nothing? <laughs> it should be easier to not do that. Like everybody, I hear, I see the conversations. People are like, how did VS Code actually make their stuff not suck? <laughs> you know, and they're using Electron. So it shouldn't work like that. I, it's, it's, it, I think the challenge is, uh, um, I think a lot of Electron apps might kind of start as desktop apps and then they port them to the web. And then you have kind of the both worlds. You've got some native yeah, stuff. The worst of both. Um, I'm looking at my teams now just to see what the, what the footprint of it is. Um, but yeah, that's one of our goals. Um, uh, Steve Sanderson has a cool blog, uh, and it, he shows some experiments we ran um, about building an Electron Hello World app and then building a Blazor version of the same application. Um, and we were able to reduce the memory footprint quite considerably. Um, and so that'll be a goal of ours is to make sure that the you know the .NET Electron style applications you know have a have a good footprint. Um, yeah, Teams is using over a gig of memory online. VS Code, I have to sort by name so I can even see 320 meg, which is fine. I mean, I, I have tons of memory, so I don't really care. They they hyper-optimized VS Code. That The, yeah. you know, the thing there is, is uh, it's amazing if you if you do optimize the heck out of something, just like even .NET, we hyper-optimized mm -hmm. you know, .NET Core, and you can see the benefits that uh, uh, we can provide to customers. Well, it makes, as you build layers on top of it, I mean, when you have that fast foundation, it's just totally a game changer. So it's pretty awesome. Well, anyway, I know we're running along on time, so I don't know if there's if there's anything that we missed that you have to mention. Otherwise, we'll close this out. I think we covered a pretty good swatch of stuff. I'm I'm not feeling like we left too much out there. The if I was going to yeah. say one final one final thing is uh, one one final area that we we spend a lot of time on is if you build a web API in .NET. Um, we added Open API to that the web apps by default. Mm. And uh, for what, for people that don't know, Open API is a spec that kind of uh, describes your API, um, and it's important for a variety of reasons. It's if you want to build a uh, having Open API in all of the web API projects by default means uh, my tool chain can now build you a client to call the API automatically. So any API you can right click on uh, in the tool or use the command line. Uh, and point to the Open API spec, and we can generate a C# -sharp client for you. Um, the other cool thing that Open API gives you is, if you're building APIs, development can kind of be kind of chunky because when you, if you run an API project, irrelevant to the language, you know, you, you know, if you're building a web app, the browser pops and you can see the the app. If you build a desktop app, the the app pops, you can see the app. If you build an API, you get nothing. Um, with Open API, it means that when you run the app, we now give you a a screen where you can actually test the API. Uh, live in the browser, That's or nice. even better, we also provided an API REPL, um, and uh, with that you can launch into the REPL, and that gives you a CLI uh, to actually call the APIs. Um, so this is that's one aspect of it. The other, the final aspect before we we jump off is um, this also means that things like Azure API management, well, they need Open APIs to understand the the layout of the API. It also means things like Power Apps. Um, also care about this. So it, we, we're making it much easier to, to, to take a, a, an, an API and expose it to things like API management, uh, to build tooling around it, and to even enable like a Power App developer, uh, that's a no-code, no low-code developer yep. to actually so be able they to point it out there and it doesn't go like, what's this? <laughs> um, yep, you can just import a, an API written in .NET 5 and, and, and Power Apps can use it right away. That's cool. Cool. Okay. So where can, well, if people want to get started with this, I mean, I, I assume that like 99.99% of our listeners have already done all this, but like, where's the starting point for, for .NET 5? Uh, big thing is just go to our website, which is dot net. It's okay. the .NET website. Uh, from there, you can download. Uh, there's plenty of learn materials if you want to get started from the first time. Um, in many cases, if you want to kick the tires, you can actually try .NET right from the browser. You don't even have to install the SDK. Uh, plenty, of the, plenty of the tutorials there let you actually run .NET live in your browser, comically enough, using Blazor. Um, 
And uh, uh, so, and there's tons of learning videos. There's a learning tab there. There's a there's a TV tab where you can um, watch a bunch of live stuff on on the on the tech as well. So, but everything starts at dot uh, net. Perfect. And then where can people find you? Um, I am best to find me on Twitter. Um, I am at cool csh. And if you're curious what the csh stands for, name Carl Scott Hunter. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, change it so that we didn't have confusion with the other Carl. <laughs> True. And of course, you know, if you want to be promoted to Microsoft, handsome and I always like to say, you know, you need to be a scout. Yep. yep, exactly. Exactly. And Carl, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash So Scott, thank you so much for coming on here and talking to us about .NET 5 and congrats on this huge milestone. Thank you so much. And uh, I hope people enjoy the tech.